0: Report. welcome to yeah but the podcast my name vivian gabor and i have the immense pleasure and the great honor of getting to sit down with legend with icon peaches christ hello hi thanks for having me thank you for being here i'm so i'm so very excited <laughs> uh, um how is your how is your october
1: going how's your halloween season Well, like everyone, it's it's an unprecedented year. And so, you know, going into October has been, I have to say, a little bit of a bummer because, you know, everything I love to do, like perform and, you know, I have a a haunted attraction in San Francisco that I do. And it's just all, you know, been tossed out the window, like my entire, you know, year. Yeah. Uh, So, so. If we take that into consideration, it's actually kind of coming together to be pretty fun because, uh, you know, accepting that we can't have life as normal, uh, I've been able to create something called screaming telegrams. So I'm actually, you know, you can order a a scary clown that I will send to deliver a a telegram to, you know, a friend or a loved one. So, uh, yeah, so we announced that. Monday, and already we've had so many orders, and it's been really great because I'm going to be able to, you know, employ some of the uh, performers who haven't been able to work, you know. Yeah. Uh, So, yes, we're doing that. um, And you can, if your listeners want to um, order their friend in San Francisco, a scary clown, uh, you can go to terrorvault.com and it's all there. So, that feels good because it feels like I'm doing something. And Mm. then You know, Jinx, uh, Monsoon, Krim and I are going to be presenting my Hocus Pocus parody, a screening of it, but we'll be appearing live on the internet and taking Q&A and telling behind the scenes stories. Um, So, you know, even though we can't perform Hocus Pocus this year, at least, you know, we're able to screen our, our parody show, Hocum Pocum. So that's, that's basically what I have planned. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: those are some great things. Um, speaking of Jinx and Ben, you've also been working on um, WQUR, uh, yeah. Queer Quarantine Radio, and I have been
1: loving that so much. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was so fun. And honestly, we thought w- the goal was to do three episodes and we did two, and I believe we'll deal with third eventually, but we did not, like everyone else, anticipate that our entire year would be shot. Yeah. So you know, as it got, as we were doing queer quarantine radio, all of us were starting to realize, holy shit, we nothing's gonna like everything we have scheduled for this year is is canceled. So Ben, uh, to her credit, um, actually had to kind of step away from WQUR with Jinx. But really, uh, DeLa was the first to have to step away because with Richard, I'm sorry, Major and I's uh, (laughs) encouragement, those two secretly went off and made a movie version of their holiday show. So Mm -hmm. we weren't able to tell people why (laughs) WQUR, you know, was taking a break because, you know, they didn't want to jinx it, unintended. (laughs) And they didn't want to, um, you know, making a movie is really hard and, you know, they had to come up with the financing and get a COVID safe shoot pulled together with dancers and sets. And so they have worked their asses off and uh, and they announced it last week, which was such a relief because we could finally say, hey, this is why WQUR is on pause. You know, there's a movie in the works. And (laughs) I think everyone now understands better, like why we just disappeared yeah absolutely
0: um but your projects are always so much fun i mean recently you've been you did uh witches of east bay um and yeah. i became aware of you because i started Dragon seattle and you used to bring your shows up to seattle all the time yeah um and i had so many friends involved and got to see so many of them and um how did you get started making all of those parody shows and what was kind of the driving force behind that
1: Well, it was really just a total um, love of movies and drag and kind of fusing, you know, I was lucky. I was sort of raised by parents, especially my mother who was kind of like, you know, I don't care what you do for a living. Uh, I don't care how you guys make money, but just, you know, do something you like, don't regret it, you know? And so when I was a kid, it was always like, I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to make movies. I'm gonna make plays. I'm, those were all the things that I loved, you know, mm-hmm. movies and theater and uh, performing. Um, and so as a as an adult, you know, it was kind of like, I was a young drag queen back when I started the movie shows, which was 1998, if you can believe it. And um, I was sort of just thinking, you know, I want to create drag shows around movies I love. And that's really where it started. And it was very small when we began. It was me hosting a movie screening in a movie theater at midnight. The show was called Midnight Mass, and me and, my, and some of my friends would get you know dressed up in drag, and we would do a pre-show that you know was a, a celebration of the movie. Sometimes it was not a parody play, or a, even in the early days, they weren't plays; they were just sketches, you know, one or two scenes, um, or a number. Um, um, but it could also take the form of a contest or you know um <laughs> we did you know drag queen roller derby i mean we broke a lot of laws back then <laughs> so we did mud wrestling in the theater you oh know, wow once i lit shit on fire which i should never have done <laughs> you know i mean it was pu- very punk rock and very um it was anarchy in in this way that like i can't believe i did some of that stuff now that when i look back on it but of course, as you become more successful and you have more eyes on you, you know, you have to do things more properly. And um, you know, so so the shows sort of morphed into more proper presentations of you know, of what you would consider to be like a play. You know, I don't even think we were calling them parodies. We didn't even know what they were, you know. And yeah. then, you know, over over time it's like, oh, that's what this is, and you <laughs> know. And it just grew. It just grew into this thing that's like one sort of component of stuff that I do. Um, but I think because I started working with the RuPaul's Drag Race Girls, you know, you know, we were doing this stuff before Drag Race. Mm-hmm. Um, but once Drag Race came along, um, and I started to work with the drag race girls, and of course, with the internet um being what it is. Uh, I think most of the world knows me, you know, if they're a drag fan, especially through drag races, the drag queen who does these parody shows for movies. But yeah. in my world, you know, it's, it's just one, one thing that I do, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. And you don't just do parody shows. I mean, I, I actually did a little bit of research uh, uh-huh. for once uh-huh. in my life. <laughs> um, and discovered that you've made a movie called All About Evil. Yes. which I have not had the pleasure of seeing. I saw the trailer and it looks amazing. Oh, um, you. W- could you tell me a little bit about that, about like making
1: it yeah. and how that came together? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the drag parody theater events started off as movies because I was making these short films um, starring my drag queen friends. And we were making parodies of things like, you know, Halloween and Mommy Dearest and Nightmare on Elm Street. And I did this trilogy um, of of horror movies and uh, it ended up being way more successful than I ever expected. Like film festivals started programming it. And when I say that this shit is cheap and stupid, it is like (laughs) so cheap and so stupid, you know? Um, And I never thought it would be taken seriously and nor do I think it should be. It was just, you know, I was making movies for the Midnight Mass audience, you know? Mm-hmm. So the fact that they got out into the world was so strange to me. And I really believed that I, I wanted to make something that wasn't Peaches-centric, that didn't, you know, revolve around um, drag. And so I made this short film called Grindhouse, because it was before the, uh, the feature film came out with the same name. And Grindhouse was this idea of this woman who was, was uh, making these movies in San Francisco where she was actually killing people, but the public didn't know that she was actually killing people. They they just liked her her little weird cheap movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Grindhouse ended up being uh, very successful as a little short, you know, that we shot over the weekend. So I decided, you know, and this was in conjunction with Mark Cuban, the billionaire. Who you know, at the time owned the Dallas Mavericks. He pro- I think he still does. Um, but that w- was what he was best known for was being the sports mm-hmm. guy, you know, very straight, you know he, he's the, you know he's on Shark Tank now, but back then he was like a famous billionaire. Yeah. He became a fan of Peaches and uh, ended up executive producing a TV version of Midnight Mass, which was on national TV back in 2000. 2000- I think seven, 2007 or so. Yeah. And so when I realized that I had a billionaire's attention, (laughs) I was like, I'm going to write a feature film, and it's going to be a feature film version of, you know, Grindhouse, and I'm going to write it, you know, with money involved. So it has elaborate gore effects and gags and, you know, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And so I sent it to Mark Cuban, and um, sadly, Mark did not finance it. (laughs) But, But I'll say this. It's... And Mark is wonderful. I mean, he's a businessman, but he is so great. And he, mm-hmm. he took a chance on me. And to this day, you know, if I were to send him an email, he would re- respond. He is yeah. just a doll. But he said, you know, if you had asked me a few years ago, I probably would have financed it. But I just financed three horror movies. None of them made any money. And, you know, he d- had done um, Black Christmas, the remake, he had done Terestas, and he had done something else. But anyway, he, he's a businessman and he yeah. started, yeah, he acquired movies like Let the Right One In and was saying, oh, you know, when you buy a movie that's already done, especially yeah. from another country and you know, it's good, it's a much safer investment. Absolutely. So go out. Yeah. He, he, his advice was go out, find the money from someone else, make your movie and then call me. And yeah. that's in basically what we did. So um, and then Mark distributed it through landmark theaters and it played you know, across the country. I actually played in Seattle at the Egyptian. Uh, Good old and, Egyptian, you know, yeah, and it was really, really wonderful. And Seattle's sort of my sister city to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, all about evil was like for me um, a real dream, you know, of, mm-hmm. of, of mine as a kid, and getting to make a movie like that. There were so many dreams involved with it too, because Mink Stole, the John Waters superstar, was in it, and. Elvira, Cassandra Peterson was in it, not as Elvira, but, you know, out of drag. And, um, and my first choice for the film, uh, I never thought I would get, you know, they, 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 they said, Oh, you know, we should cast, we actually cast someone else who ended up dropping out for the female lead. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was devastated. It was just a few weeks before we were going to shoot. I mean, that's like terrifying. Right. And, uh, And my director of photography, who's so brilliant, he had shot like thirty movies, including Shopping Mall and you know House of a Thousand Corpses. But he had also shot like Sundance favorites. You know, he had just finished shooting a movie called Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Yeah. And um, Tom Richmond said to me, "Well, who is your dream?" And I said, "You know, when I was writing this script, I was picturing Sissy Spacek." and Shelley Duvall, you know, women from the Mm seventies who were in these genre films and they were unique. They didn't look like anybody else. Everyone knew who they were, you know, and they were, you know, um, they had character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was like the only young actor I really, you know, picture in this part is like Natasha (laughs) Lyonne, you know? (laughs) And and Tom said, you know, I shot the slums of Beverly Hills and i'm like oh that's right and he picks up the phone and he calls natasha leone and he's like i'm sitting here with this this director and he has this incredible script and you should talk to him and he puts me on the phone with natasha and you know and our conversation again was like a dream you know it's that iconic natasha leone voice and she and i tell her about the movie and i say you know, I based it on this exploitation filmmaker, this woman, Mm -hmm. um, the only woman who made exploitation films in the 60s and 70s. And Natasha interrupts me and she goes, Doris Wishman? And I'm like, how the fuck do you know who Doris (laughs) Wishman is? You know? And she's like, I love Doris Wishman. And from that moment on, it was like, Oh my God, Not only did she agree to do the movie, but we um, you know, it was it was like a dream project working mm-hmm. with her at Thomas Decker. And anyway, I could go on and on as I do
0: yeah (laughs) no i please go on and on i i do find that that the projects that tend to be the most blessed are the ones that just start as passion projects and things that you just you're doing because you love to do it and then because you love to do it people who love to do what they do will get on board and and it will always become this kind of maelstrom of passion that creates these amazing things
1: I agree. And I think, you know, when, if, when you finally get to see all about evil, it, it's we're, we're negotiating with one of the big streaming services right now. so I, Amazing. I think it's gonna be out soon. But before we do that, I kind of want to do a live anniversary screening of it before the end of this year with hopefully, you know, Natasha and Thomas and people involved, um, because I think it's just so sad that we, we can't gather in cinemas right now and we can't yeah. gather in drag shows. But I have to say, the live component to screening these things—like if I were to just put *The Witches of East Bay* on YouTube—it's not the same as getting together with Coco and Chad and showing it to an audience who's, yeah. you know, watching it all together, all at the same time, and we're engaging with each other. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think, you know, thank God for technology. Like, thank God we have that because, you know, without that thing, this situation would be even more depressing. You know. Yeah. <laughs> we still need we still yearn for connection and we want to we want to share a love of a of a, of a drag performer or a movie we we want to share that with people and so we are able to do that at least you know with um, the internet and uh so my hope is to screen all about evil you know like as an event before the end of the year um, and um yeah and you will you'll, you'll get to see it hopefully it'll be tune amazing
0: in. oh I'm so
1: excited um
0: Something that that I've been wondering a lot and that I've been having conversations with a few people about um is drag is a very different thing now than it has been in the past because it's it's much more in the I always try to steer clear of the word mainstream because people always get mad at me if I say mainstream or whatever, but it's it's much more in the public eye now than it used to be. Um what what was your experience coming up pre-drag race? And I mean, honestly, basically kind of creating drag culture as it is um,
1: with your friends. <laughs> um, well, you know, it was not popular um, in the mid-90s. Um, and so I, in some ways, am really grateful for that because there was this sort of um, like, truly punk rock edgy you know side to it and I think because as young people we now I love all forms of drag I really do I mean I you know I still love going to like old school drag shows and there's nothing better than see seeing a queen do Judy Garland you know so so I never want to sound like I don't appreciate uh, other forms of drag. It's just that when I was young and interested in drag and horror movies, which you know I still am, um you know, we were kind of creating a new kind of show, a new kind of experience, you know and and some of the more traditional fans of drag and the and more traditional drag performers did not like us and the 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 mainstream gay community, um, really did not like us. <laughs> and um, you know, I think we really loved that. You yeah, know, there was this sort of, you know, this sort of sense of um it, it being punk in a way. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm gonna say the word uh tranny shack and and with the caveat that, mm-hmm. you know, at that time um that word, which is now a pejorative for sure, um, in this community, I can only speak for the Bay Area. Um, But it was very true that at that time, it was very much a term of endearment for um, a, um, what's the word? Well, a niche group of people who were like on the inside of something. And like the outside folks didn't even know that word, you know. And so it's bigger than the word. It was the community. It was that you could go to Tranny Shack And the drag performers included trans women, they included cis women, they included bearded queens, they included straight people, you know, bisexual people. Like it was such a clubhouse, Um, this nightclub where I got my start, you know, and I was just lucky. I arrived in San Francisco right when that club started, and it's where I met all of my friends. Um, But in the audience, you know, you had straight men coming with their wives and the men were dressed in women's clothes, you know? So when I say it was like an umbrella term for a a vast, because we were all hated for the same reason. Mm -hmm. So it didn't matter to me that Joe had a wife and he had a beard and was dressed in a mini skirt and a blouse, like I thought it was so great because it was transgressive and, you know, it was it was a special time, and um, and there were no rules, and things could be very offensive, and you know um, they weren't often always celebrated. So the best, most creative people, you know, um, succeeded, and the audience was discerning. And if you if you were rude in a way that they didn't like, they'd let you know. You know, it wasn't just you couldn't just come out and take a shit on the stage. You know, <laughs> but the shit had to stand for something. You know. Yeah. Um, and it was a really special time and Midnight Mass was born um you know Tranny Shack started in 96 and I started doing Midnight Mass in 98 and we basically were all the same you know you know group of performers and you know many of us from that first year of Tranny Shack have stuck with um performing you know um animatronic from the Scissor Sisters was certainly our um you know our they 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 would say afab queen Uh, now back then we just called Anna, you know, a drag queen, basically just like the rest of us. And Anna, I'll tell you, it didn't matter that she was a cis woman. She was fucking scary and she was intense. And in some ways, I think because she was swimming with sharks, um, I I was almost more intimidated by Anna, you know, her her talent was undeniable. Mm -hmm. So it was this special thing where, um, these things that are still issues today and more pop, popular drag communities, especially on television, like cis women being included or trans women like that's just never been anything that's been part of my, you know, I was lucky. I was lucky. I mean, I come, come I moved to a city where the Cockettes in 1969 were, were doing this stuff. It wasn't yeah. like Tranny started it. We were just part of a legacy of drag culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was different. And it was, um, you know, I fought calling drag mainstream as well um, until now. Now I'm like, <laughs> oh, so, I'm kind of so sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> Is that horrible to say? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love it. It's a love hate kind of thing. Like, I love drag. I'll always love drag. You know, I was introduced to drag through the the movies of John Waters and the Rocky Horror Picture Show, like, it's just meant so much to me. But I do feel kind of like drag has become the pumpkin latte of basic, you know, whatever, like, coolness. And, you know, I just roll my eyes at so much of it now. And, and I know that's terrible to say. And I know I sound like a bitter old queen. But Maybe I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you are, then
0: I just got there real early too. I, yeah, yeah, I definitely yeah. feel that drag fatigue that it just it feels like there's so much of it and it just it keeps coming and keeps coming. And the more of it that's out there, the more watered down it gets. And yeah. Um, I well, mean, but- I, I have to give it some credit because I did I started drag because I saw the Sissy That Walk music video. So like I have to give it some okay, kind of go. credit. Yeah. But at the same time, there's you, you definitely, you can tell people's intentions and reasons for it much more clearly now. Right, exactly.
1: And I and I, and I, I actually think that the positive stuff through its popularity certainly outweighs mm-hmm. my, you know, remnant It's the same thing with gay marriage. It's like, uh, and just c- queer, you know, it's that thing between being gay and queer, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I am really for and equity and, and believe that gay people should have the right to be married. I mean, I'm in a binational relationship. So, you know, it, it affected me that my partner and I at one time could not get married. You know, that really did fuck up our lives, you know? Um, so I'm not one of those radical queers who doesn't think, you know, we should have um, equal rights. I do. However, um, there was a time in the past when things were harder and suckier, but also cooler and more <laughs> rock and more fun and more mm-hmm. uh, like kind of more exciting and subversive. So it is this sort of thing where I, I like to give that caveat, like I'm really not a bitter old, you know, bitch. I, I'm more like, you know, there was this time when being queer was exciting, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not, it's not, you know, it's for, for, for the better. It's, it's very accepted now. Although, I mean, we, I say that and we're living in a, in a world that's on fire, literally. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, well, what am I talking about? Like, you know, we're literally fighting for women to have the right to choose and, Mm -hmm. you know, for women to have, you know, equality. And so, you know, at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, our our Supreme Court could actually take all this shit away from us at any moment. I mean, that's really what we're facing. And, you know, I, I certainly, you know, kind of feel like, Right now, more than ever, it's sort of like, God, if all of us got together. And but I I guess by all of us, I mean, everyone that's not rich, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Black, white, you know, gay, straight, bi, trans, cis, whatever. If we all got together, you know, we could fucking rule, but Mm -hmm. we won't. And they want to keep us apart. So, you know, racism and homophobia help support capitalism it sure does yeah and oh god
0: that's that's a big old topic right there yeah. um yeah i i mean i watched the show um mrs america that came out i think it was on hbo um and it shocked me that i didn't even realize that the equal rights amendment never passed yeah like we're fine. still in a world where people aren't actually equal and it's yeah. mind-boggling it's mind-boggling yeah.
1: I think it's yeah, because I
0: grew up. Yeah. Oh, go for it! <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. I, I, I was, thought that was a
1: really great show. So I'm oh, glad that you're such plugging a great it. show. Oh, right, such right a now, great show. We're all consuming so much content, so it's like you know, let people know about you know those things. And I I watched it on Hulu. So uh, I don't Perfect. know if it, if if um, anyone's listening and they want to watch, I think it was FX, not HBO. You're right. Um, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it's really well done. Uh. Oh, and Kate Blanchett always amazing amazing even <laughs> when she's playing someone complicated that you kind of hate you know it's still delicious to watch her yeah and um, who else was great was um tracy allman as andrea dworkin yeah oh my god she was so great yeah th- actually they're all amazing um the woman from orange is the new black that played shirley jackson uh uzo duba yes so yes. good oh my god oh Yeah. So it's a great show. Everyone should check it out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think I, part of my problem is I grew up in Seattle. And so I kind of grew up in that, the West coast liberal bubble of you don't look too closely into those things because you just kind of assume that they exist because you live in a city that those things
1: exist in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have to say watching Seattle and Portland, you know, um, at the last few months, it's it's been really clear, especially Portland, but Seattle too. Like you're not really the bubble isn't that big. Like no. there were forces like just outside that bubble who want to really hurt you, you know. And I mean, same thing in California. I think California gets this sort of you know this this idea that the idea of California is basically based on Los Angeles and San Francisco, but the reality oh. of it is it's just a really small part of this giant state, you know. And as soon as we leave, I mean, even 10 miles out of town, you know, and especially LA, I mean, Orange County is like terrifying, you know, that's like Karen central. Oh yeah.
0: All you have to do if you're in Seattle is drive 45 minutes East and you're into Eastern Washington. And all of a sudden it's, it's red signs everywhere. You've lost the blue. Everything is just, (laughs) it's It's a very different story. Yeah. but, I mean, San Francisco and Seattle have such a storied past um, with each other. San Francisco has always been kind of that that bastion of hope and, and beacon of queer light. Um, and then Seattle's always kind of grabbed some of that light and been like, we could do that too. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I always think of them as sister cities for sure. Like Absolutely. the the drag culture, um, you know, I, I started doing shows in Seattle God, probably almost twenty years ago. I think the first one we did there was "Sing Along Purple Rain," and it was probably, well, yeah, it was in the early two thousands, maybe, maybe you know, eighteen years ago or something. And so, and I got to I got to meet Sylvia Oste for more very early on, and you know, became friends. You know, myself and Grady were actually uh, the two people who worked for Landmark Theaters and were performing in drag, and so. I kept I kept hearing about this guy Grady who was doing this drag performer up in Seattle and he worked for the Neptune and he finally came down to San Francisco and we met and he was kind of, and it was like oh you do peaches christ well I do Dina Martina and it was like oh well you know and it was kind of like oh good thing we both have jobs cuz th- neither of us are going anywhere you know because our <laughs> our, our drag characters were so bizarre you know yeah. and so out there um, and now, you know, I look at the, the the city and I don't know if you know Ursula Android and Jackie Hell and, you know, oh, yeah. all those queens. But, you know, it, there was like such tremendous overlap between mm-hmm. this sort of style of, of San Francisco drag and Seattle drag.
0: It's always been what I love about both of them is they they have such a strong undercurrent of experimentalism and being willing to kind of go out on a limb because it might work. It might not, but it might work. And if you try it and it fails, people will be just as excited as if you
1: tried it and it succeeded. (laughs) You actually get more credit for trying something than playing it safe. Even if Mm -hmm. it's a failure, you know, I think you're right. What went into the, the creation of Peaches for you? Well, I mean, I think because I never thought of it as a career and I never, you know, I, w- I really thought I was gonna like break away from my full-time job, which was running art house movie theaters, you know, mm-hmm. working it for landmark theaters. I really thought that I would, you know, um, start to work more in the film business and make money working in the film business. But my problem was I always wanted to be a writer and director, like I didn't want to go work for someone, you know, yeah. and so doing Peaches was this great way for me to basically affordably control the entire thing. So, yeah. you know, I could come up with a number and I only had to spend the money it would take to entertain people for five minutes, you know, mm-hmm. or whatever. And so Peaches was this sort of hobby that was satisfying the sort of um, creative need I had, because I didn't have the money to make my own movies at that time. And I mean, the movies we made, like I said, I mean, they cost like $50. But um, even though that, you know, at that time was, you know, uh, expensive for me. Um, So Peaches ended up being this hobby, which was also expensive. (laughs) I think think in the early years, I probably spent way more money being a drag performer than I made, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was a hobby. It was a passion project where I could really um, creatively... Uh, tell a story, and that's kind of how I've always looked at peaches. And the stories I'm interested in are macabre and weird, and have a dark sense of humor. And you know, I love making people um, laugh, you know, and and be grossed out. And I love to scare people, and you know, um, so I'm I'm kind of a carny, you know. And I think of peaches in a way as you know a version, uh, just another a, a component to my my adult life as a carny, you know. I love that. The idea of kind
0: of being the, the, um well, she, what do they call them? The caller, the person that stands outside of the circus. that's like, you better get in here because this is going to be great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> the ringleader. The ringleader the master. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um I was wondering, could you maybe talk a little bit about what I've, I feel like when we talk about queer history and specifically like the nineties and the AIDS epidemic and things like that, we talk a lot about New York and we talk a lot about the East coast, um, simply because a lot of that is, I mean, we have rent, we have a lot of media that's focused in New York during that time period. Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't, I don't know much specifically about San Francisco in that time period. I mean not to not to brag but i was born in 1990 uh so i obviously was not very aware of things
1: during that decade right but yeah i mean i actually one of the projects i'm working on which you know who knows uh if it will see the light of day but i am working on a project where all those questions will be answered um i really think the uh the history of drag in San Francisco and the sort of, when you trace things back to, you know, the coquettes and even before the coquettes, these these queens that were performing at this place called Finocchios, which had been open since the 30s, um, you realize that like everything that we think about, you know, in some way, shape or form, um, was, you know, coming out of San Francisco. Um, when you think about drag and even queer activism, in a parallel universe, it was also happening in New York, you know, mm-hmm. so so it's this thing where New York, you know, with the Warhol superstars and um, and Stonewall, you know, it's always been on the map, but, you know, there was a riot in San Francisco that happened a year before Stonewall did, where, where drag queens revolted at the Compton cafeteria, and these drag yeah. performers and trans women fought cops and kind of ignited a movement here in San Francisco um and so i do want to tell that story i think it's such a big story and I, I i actually feel like it should you know um be done you know in a series so that's why i'm working on this drag docu series about you know the history of drag in san francisco um so if you're out there and you're an investor or producer hit <laughs> me up i have a lookbook i can send you um yeah so we're we're i uh, my, my um Business partner Michael Varadi, someone I work with a lot, we've put together this whole pitch. Um, anyway, uh, the '90s, in particular, there was a club culture that was very similar to what was happening in New York with club kids. I am and uh, and where when tranny shack kind of was came along uh, was around the time that the AIDS cocktail was working and you know Mm -hmm. people were when i moved here you know the obituaries in the bay area reporter were pages and pages and i remember in the first year or two i lived here and the bay area reporters headline was no obituaries because it was the first time in a decade where they didn't have you know um someone you know who had died because of complications with aids Wow. Uh, so we were it was sort of a turning point so the 90s are kind of split mm-hmm. be, they're sort of the the the, the uh, pre-cocktail part the first five six years and then the post cocktail part and I think that post-cocktail era uh, which was you know 96 97 98 there was this renewed sense of um, hope you know and and people were, you know, I think, um, you know, and we were entering the year 2000. I mean, it's funny to think about now, but you know, there was like all this, both anxiety and excitement, you know, about entering the new century. Um, so yeah, I think all of that stuff went, to, you know, play into it, but yeah, the, the, the New York had the squeeze box where, you know, Lady Bunny and Mistress Formica and, you know, people we knew and San Francisco had Tranny Shack but we did not have the internet. Yeah, <laughs> so you know the way we knew about each other was through like you know phone calls and you know um, documentary films and you know uh, you know flying to each other's cities. You know, um, so I, I remember flying to New York in two thousand one for. Uh, Wigstock and, you know, being there with Heclina and how exciting it was to get, you know, backstage and on a, it was me and Vin Vincentos, Heclina, and, you know, meeting, um, you know, Deborah Harry and all these people. And Lady Bunny was someone I, you know, I idolized. It was before I was like friends with her, you know, I was just so excited that she had invited us to yeah. be there. And there was this sort of sisterly Enthusiasm for each other's cities and in support, you know, really mm-hmm. true support. Ironically, we have photos of us out on that pier at Wigstock, the giant, you know, the giant last ever Wigstock that she uh did, and you know, it's like me and Heclina and Bunny uh, with with the twin towers in the background, you know, and they were gone like a week later, you know, because it was Labor wow. Day weekend. Yeah, so you know, it, it was a Ooh. different time, you know. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course that also created a radical shift you know mm-hmm. there's you know the pre 911 and post 911 era of performing
0: oh yeah and i i mean i was just coming into consciousness and being able to like actually understand what was going on in the world at that point and yeah. going from Y2K bugs to then all of a sudden we were excited because it was a new millennium and then all of a sudden oh wait we have to wait in line
1: for security for an airplane <laughs> yeah 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 and not to um downplay the the terrifying horrors of 911 but i just mm-hmm. keep thinking about how the entire world became obsessed especially americans with hunting down some bin laden but You know, now we're in this situation where our president is a fucking white supremacist telling, you know, a hate group to stand by while 210,000 Americans have died from a disease. You know, it's like, what is happening? You know, just compare the, you know, it's like 9-11 at that time was the biggest, most horrifying thing. And in comparison, it just doesn't feel, it just right now is just so overwhelming. You know, it's just- yeah.
0: I mean, I remember watching, like, I remember the terror that I had during 9-11 because I was, I had just turned 11 years old mm-hmm. Um, and I watched it happen on television and it was, I was so confused by it and so scared and like, I remember just always having that in the back of my mind and now, I don't know, I almost feel because I had that experience so early, I almost feel like what's going on right now, I'm just like right. it's it's almost it feels like more of a rolling my eyes kind of a situation. Not that I'm not doing anything, but like I I don't know. For me, it's it's if it almost feels more
1: run of the mill like it was expected. <laughs> right. That's interesting. That's that's really, really interesting. Cause you were so formative when mm-hmm. you were so young when that happened. Whereas, you know, for me, I was, you know. It was on a Tuesday. I would perfor- I literally performed that night at Tranny Shack. I mean, you know, it's crazy. And I think back on that, and I'm like, I cannot believe we performed that night. Like, what mm-hmm. were we thinking? Um, but in many ways, I remember Hector. And calling me and being like, "Girl, what should I do?" And part of our decision to um, move forward with the show was just that people were afraid, and that this was a place once a week where a certain group of people could see each other. You know, um, so it was more about community than it was like putting on a show. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel
0: like I I got a taste of that same feeling when right after the Pulse massacre. um because at that point i was hosting karaoke twice a week in seattle um and going into work that night was scary because i was like i'm a drag queen hosting at a gay bar all night and now we've just had this example of oh someone can just go into a gay bar and kill everyone for the heck of it and it but Ultimately, I, I, I similarly decided to keep doing it because I was like, this is the only time every week when I'm like really excited and really happy, and I know that people come here expecting this, this right. safety. And if I were to say no, I'm too scared, I can't do this. What would that, what message would that give to the community?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it that was that was another nightmare. Uh, that was like kind of, I think every queer person had had that fear in the back of their head, you know, because we we grew up in a world where we know that there are people who absolutely hate us, like mm-hmm. no matter how supportive your parents are or your community is, you still don't erase the you know the overwhelming worldview of queer people, which is not good and uh that 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 incident was basically like our worst nightmares you know coming true, so yeah, that yeah. was awful,
0: and it really proved to me the the role of leadership that drag queens have within the queer community that we're not just entertainment that
1: people look to us for kind of how
0: to react to things
1: Mm -hmm. yeah for sure i mean i've sometimes really rejected that part of my um persona but now i mean it's like i don't reject it as much anymore like you know i didn't like it in some ways when when peaches was becoming more um what's the word not safe, but like part of the fabric of San Francisco, like, you know, I remember, I remember the DeYoung Museum, which is a really prestigious museum in San Francisco when it was my 10 year anniversary and they were doing a sort of a party and a retrospective and it was very surreal. And part of me was so excited. And another part of me was like, what, <laughs> you know, I'm not supposed to be, you know, and now I, you know, I perform every year at the, big, the symphony hall or whatever. And it's like, wait a second, I'm, I'm supposed to be the punk rock? girl that you don't like but that's changed you know if you perform long enough in a place you know that place is going to hopefully embrace you and so now um you know I do more as a as a I guess a community leader which is so weird you know because I'm a satanist (laughs) as we all should be yeah exactly (laughs) I
0: love that recently people have started claiming like i'm a communist i'm a socialist i'm a i'm a satanist i'm all i'm it's i don't it's exciting for me to see people being able to claim their otherness and to be able to claim their compassion because i feel like ultimately that's what all of those labels lead to is people are just saying i'm a compassionate person and i'm able to claim that within this world that is not a compassionate world right right yeah um I've started asking all of my guests this, and I'm really excited to hear your answer. Um, just what advice would you give to, um, both to just queer people in general right now, um, but also um, people starting in drag, people getting into the gig, as it were?
1: mm mm-hmm. um, I think my strongest advice would be that in many ways, you, you, that, you, you have it better uh, because of the popularity of drag. There are many ways that, but I would, I would argue that you're actually, you actually don't. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, because it's so popular and because there's this one channel, you know, that people see as, as a sort of a formula for having a bigger drag career, which is to get on, you know, one of the reality TV shows, um, and don't get me wrong, I love Dragula. You know, I've been wildly entertained by Drag Race. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not disparaging those things, but that's a very small window of opportunity for a large group of people. Now, you know, we're talking, you know, at best, you know, uh, what. 30 people a year or something. Um, so my my advice would be to not focus on that and not have that expectation, but to do again what makes you happy, to follow your passions, to follow your originality, to, you know, really not look to the other girls to tell you how to do it or, you know, to to sort of make your um your your path uh to do it on your own and 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 really try to reject things like YouTube makeup tutorials and, you know, um, looking for the next, you know, trend in drag. You create the trend, you know, like you come up with your own weird, you know, fucked up thing and, you know, seek out the Queens um, pre-drag race, you know, and I mean, Queens that aren't even alive, you know, go back and like, you know, do the research and, and watch John Waters movies and, you know, figure out, you know, make sure you know who dina martina is and christine and you know that's my advice now is like just know that there's this big world out there of opportunity that's not one of two television shows yeah <laughs> you know? and 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 to take your inspirations um from you know people and things that go beyond that reach
0: yeah I think there are a lot of performers that people have just never heard of um, and it doesn't even cross people's minds that drag as we know it has been around since the, the 30s, 20s the 1900s like it's yeah it's been around
1: a lot longer than just 50 years. <laughs> if you look at the queens that are really successful on those TV shows, you'll see that the the most successful queens followed the beat of their own drum, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you look at uh, Bianca, um, you know, this is a queen who said, I don't do this. I don't do that. I do comedy and I make costumes. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's what I'm good at. That's what I like. I'm going to... I'm going to insult you and I don't give a shit if you're offended, you know. And, you know, that really obviously has worked for her. You know, Mm -hmm. Trixie Mattel is a country music musician. Like, that is tough. Like, if someone said, I'm going to do country music and outrageous clown makeup drag, (laughs) I would have said, like, okay, good luck. But you know what? (laughs) That's what fucking works because it's original. It's, It's her. It's her passion. It's... It's completely coming from a place of authenticity. I mean, I hate that buzzword. Everyone wants <laughs> to use that buzzword now, but it's so true, you know? So just follow your, you know, follow what makes you happy and what you're interested in. Absolutely.
0: I would agree. And I absolutely needed to hear that as well. <laughs> Good. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to plug and tell people about uh,
1: that in upcoming? Well, you know right away i plugged things right when you started talking to me as a true
0: professional should
1: (laughs) so so yes if you're in san francisco or if you know someone in san francisco um and you want to send one of our scary clowns uh to deliver a screaming telegram that website is terrorvault.com because i can't do my haunted attraction this year although i am coming to you from the san francisco mint building which is where we do the haunted attraction we're obviously not able to open our doors this year, um, and then uh, peacheschrist.live is where you can get tickets to my upcoming online shows. Um, and the next one is Hokum Pokum with Jinx Monsoon and ben De la Creme, and they'll be with me presenting it in person. Fantastic! And then, where can people find you online uh, outside of that? So I am on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you search Peaches Christ and I'm, verified. I'm verified yeah, on all three. so just look for that little blue check. Not that there are, you know, I don't think there are people out there impostering me, although once in a while, you know, like for Instagram and stuff, it's like my name's not Peaches Christ. it's the Peaches Christ because some kind you know won't give me Peaches Christ. Do you know what I mean? like that, <laughs> yeah. that, that's so weird, you know, but yeah. anyway, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so, yeah. so very much. I've really appreciated getting yeah. a chance to sit down and talk to you.
1: And I've really enjoyed talking yeah. to you as yeah. well. Thanks for having me. Yeah.
0: Thank you. And we will yeah.
1: talk to you all later. Bye. Bye.
0: Yeah. Thank you yeah. for listening to Yeah, But with Vivian Gabor. Tune in next week. Same place, same time.
1: Yeah.